Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to a special replay of episode 11, How Madeline Miller Writes. I am so excited to reshare this episode with you, both because Madeline was so open and shared so much incredible wisdom and insights into the writing life, but also because I could talk about history and the ancient world, I think just about as much as I could talk about anything at all. This interview is one of the highlights from the How Writers Write podcast, and I cannot wait to replay it. So without any further ado, here is a special replay of the interview with Madeline Miller. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I'm your host, Brian, and today I am welcoming Madeline Miller to the show. Madeline's first novel, The Song of Achilles, was awarded the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction and was a New York Times bestseller. Miller was also shortlisted for the 2012 Stonewall Writer of the Year. Her second novel, Circe, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller, one of my favorite books, definitely of the year, maybe of all time and won the Indie's Choice Best Adult Fiction of the Year Award and the Indie's Choice Best Audiobook of the Year Award, as well as like a zillion other awards that I couldn't even list out. It'd be the whole show if I just listed the awards. <laughs> Circe is currently being adapted for a series with HBO Max, which is really great. I cannot wait to watch that. Miller's novels have also been translated into over 25 languages, including Dutch, Mandarin, Japanese, and a ton of other ones. Her essays have appeared in a number of publications, including The Guardian, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Telegraph, Laugham's Quarterly, and NPR.org. She currently lives outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Last, Madeline grew up in New York City and in Philadelphia. She attended Brown University, where she earned her BA and MA in classics. She has taught and tutored Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare to high school students for over 15 years. Madeline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So I read online that you grew up and spent a ton of time close to the Met in Manhattan. I did. And I was really, really fortunate. You know, now that I don't live in New York City, I sort of realize all these things that I took for granted as a kid. Getting to go and see internationally renowned collections of world art was just totally shaped my my childhood. And I loved getting to see, of course, the ancient Roman and Greek stuff and the Egyptian stuff. I mean, I spent hours in the Egyptian wing there. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a specific part of the Met that <clears throat> is... Just if you if you have an hour, that's where you're going. I mean, I think at this point it's the Egyptian wing. I just yeah. absolutely adore uh, that whole collection. The like the temple and the mummies and everything like that. Yes. Yeah, yes. the Met is my happy place. So like it's <laughs> it's the, for, for me it's the sculpture garden. Which oh I, yeah yeah the the two sculptures of Hercules. Yes. Just every time I go there, I think I spend a majority of my time. I go from one. And then I walk to the other, and then I walk to the other. I just kind of go back and forth. I think in another life, I could have been a studied classics and a huge Roman history fan. So that area has a lot of 
resonance to me. So growing up around such an unbelievable well, like I think of the Met as almost like an epicenter of human storytelling and storytelling through sculpture and storytelling through religious artifacts and paintings and textiles and, you know, the, the place is huge. So growing up around that, what was the impact that that had on you eventually becoming a storyteller later in your life? There was this particular piece in the in their Greco-Roman collection, which was a wounded Amazon warrior, and you could actually see the the wound on her side. Now, this piece would have been even more dramatic in the ancient world because all the ancient statues were painted in bright and vivid colors, which is the one thing that I think many people don't know, and I didn't know for many years, that you know we have this this image of all this ancient artist being austere and kind of cold, that that marble, but they were it was all painted. And it was one of those things that was sort of hiding in plain sight, speaking of stories that are that are kind of hidden, is that because there's there's ink in all the folds of, you know, you can kind of see the paint still crusted in the folds of some of these paintings. But for years, scholars had this image in their minds that it, w- it was all white and they sort of ignored it, even though it was right there. So I always love, first of all, stories like that, where there's this hidden thing that people have been overlooking. But I, I in particular love this Amazon warrior because it was such a dramatic pose. You know, here's this woman, she's wounded in battle. How did we get to this moment? What happens after this moment? I think human brains are just really wired to ask those types of questions. Do you, do you remember like what age it was when that, those questions dawned on you? I mean, I think I was I was really obsessed with stories from as far back as I can remember. You know, a- age five is kind of my first real memory of my mom read me the beginning of, of the Iliad and which goes, you know, sing goddess of the destructive rage of Achilles. And I, I had this instinctive response of like, why is he angry? Who is he? You know, that I immediately sort of like, I want to know more. I want to hear more. I want to understand how this situation connects. Wow. And so from from age five you got this sense of story and you're, you're going to see the Met and checking out these amazing, you know, paintings and just, it's such a beautiful, wonderful place in the world. Do you remember, was there a, a book or an event or something that launched you from passively listening to stories to being like, I want to do this. I actually want to write my own story. Mm, That is such a good question. I don't know if I can, well, maybe actually, maybe, maybe I, so one of my kind of formative reading experiences was reading Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim with my mom and she would read it before bedtime to me. And then we got to the final sort of chunk of it and we didn't have time to finish the whole thing. So my mom said, okay, I'm going to stop there. I know we only have like five pages left or something, but don't turn on the light and read it after I'm gone. I was like, whoa, you just gave me the keys to the kingdom. I didn't know I could do that, but now I'm definitely going to, mom. Oh my gosh. Um, so I, my mom left. I turned on, on my flashlight. I read the rest of the book. The book has a devastating ending because my favorite rat dies. And I went running down, you know, crying in tears. But I had this, this feeling of like, I wish I could write that ending where that rat didn't die. 
you know, and then that rat sort of became part of my imaginary play. And, you know, sometimes I would sort of like bring him into various stories. And I feel like that's the beginning. That's sort of the impulse of, of like, I want to put my hand in and, and I want to respond to this. And it's been really interesting being a parent because I, I see it now developing in my children. The other day I was telling my, my oldest child, who's five, a story about Jason and the Argonauts. I was kind of, it was just the beginning of the Jason story. Some of the Jason story is not appropriate for children, but I was going for the, <laughs> you know, the edited version. And she said, mommy, stop. I would like this story to be about a woman. And I was like, oh, all right, well, I can change on the fly. Let's go. So, <laughs> so I just made Jason a, a female character. I named him, I renamed him Atalanta. And, you know, we, we went with the, we went with the story that way. So I loved that impulse that she sort of said, you know, she wanted to take part in it already. Yeah. It, it's so interesting. I've experienced something really similar with my children and their relationship to story. And part of what the podcast has explored in the past is the, is the idea of how story in a young age is so formative mm -hmm. and how so many people can remember their first stories that they ever told. And the first time that story started to seep into them and how that later impacted them as their lives progressed. And so it's always interesting to hear it and then also see it in my own children where they interact with the world through story. They understand each other and they play in really sometimes bizarre, you know, ways where it's like, wow, you're playing a really traumatic scene over and over. Yeah. But how that starts to like set this foundation. Yeah. Are you reading like the a kid's version to your child of Jason and the Argonauts? Are you just straight text right from the source? No, I'm telling it. Like I'm doing it. Just from memory. Just from memory. <laughs> from memory. Oh my yeah, gosh! It sounds like the best children's book idea that I've ever <laughs> heard in my entire life. Like sign me up for that children's book. Like I put my name on that line. That's an amazing. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I found that a lot of the children's versions are very, at least my children, and I think this is true of, you know, all children are very sensitive and they take things in very deeply. And and all the children's versions out there that I could find, they're just not ready for. And so. I was having to heavily edit the text on the fly. And so I realized, you know, I, this is what I do. I, A, I know all this Greek myth, so I'll just tell them the stories. And we all like that much better because then I can sort of adjust, you know, I can titrate the level of, <laughs> of things as we go. But absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that you touched on is something that is really meaningful to me is the way that stories can also be therapy, that, that we tell stories in order to make sense of things that we've seen. And I see that a lot with my kids is that they, if something scary happens, they sort of want to tell it and reenact it and tell it and kind of process it. And that that's clearly how they're processing it. And stories are, are really sort of this fundamental way that we make meaning and that we understand the world and we work through trauma and, and all of that. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Forever. It's like yeah. a, it's like a skill you learn as a child. Yes. And then if, if for you, if story is a way that you express yourself in the world, which for anyone you know, listening to this podcast, it's probably the way they express themselves or what are the ways they express themselves in the world. You continue to work through your life through story. And so many times I feel like you write something and then later realize the deep relationship it had to yeah. a part of yourself you didn't even know needed to be exercised. Yeah. Which is so, so interesting. So do you remember talking about actually writing? Do you, do you remember when you started to write stories? Like, like, did you start, you know, at a young age? Was it later in your life? When did you actually start composing your own original material? I can first remember really vividly around second grade. So I was around seven at the time. And we had sort of free writing time, which was always my favorite. And I would just write story after story after story. And 
you were supposed to then bring it to your teacher and have your teacher edit it. And then you were supposed to copy it out in like a nice version, but I would skip those parts and just then start another story. <laughs> that seemed like a total waste of time. Why do I possibly want to write this out in good handwriting? I just want to write another story. And I really was, there is kind of a family story from that time where I was very quiet and very shy. And my mom went in to have a conference with the teacher and the teacher said, you know, she is a little, strange and she's very quiet but as long as she can write she'll be fine and my mom didn't tell me that until years later and I was like wow that that teacher really knew what (laughs) what was going on foresight right there (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but I loved that writing and I loved filling up those notebooks and just you know the blank maybe I'll put a dinosaur in this one there were a lot of dinosaurs in my stories (laughs) in those days and it was clearly looking back I still have those notebooks and it was clearly sort of this fantasy my favorite teacher was always in them and my best friend was always in them and it was this way to kind of fulfill a fantasy about it was play it was just pure play did you grow up in a literary family not really my well sort of my mother was a librarian But at the time when I was growing up, she was actually not working as a librarian. She was in the business world. And then when I got older, she would go back and she would become a kindergarten teacher. But I feel like she is a, you know, dyed in the wool English major. And so she had a lot of books around and she was reading. And so I certainly was exposed to a lot of books. Yeah. So you started writing your first stories at a, you know, second grade. And I think about my daughter at that age and how she's writing crazy stories and how, how it's just so fun to see. I talk about my kids so much in this because it's like so much you just start to live your life again when you start seeing your kids grow up. And it's I, true. It is what it is. I can't help myself. I love them. They're wonderful kids. So did you study writing? I mean when, when did you when did you then start from second grade on? When did you start understanding the mechanics and like the building blocks and learning here's how a character is designed and developed and Here's plot and, and dialogue and all those big pillars of putting together a complete story. I mean, I was very unthoughtful about my writing. I loved my writing and I and I would do it, but I, I had no real concept of of any of really any of that. I wasn't sort of intellectualizing it at all. It was always coming from this feeling that I had and the desire to express a feeling, but I, I didn't really I because I was sort of writing this completely by myself. I didn't you know, my, my schools, except with the exception of that second grade, didn't really emphasize writing or kind of teaching those things. All the focus was on academic writing. And so I was just sort of, I, I was learning, but it was this very unconscious type of learning because I was a huge reader. Um, and I'm a big fan of Zadie Smith saying that the best way to be a writer is to, you know, read absolutely everything, to go back right. in time and to have read obsessively as a child, which luckily I did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's never too late to start reading obsessively. And so I was learning all this stuff, but I didn't really know that I was learning it. It wasn't, it wasn't explicit. I would say that things began to get explicit in sort of high school when I started to seek out things like Stephen King's On Writing and Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I think Steering the Craft was out at that point. I think I first encountered that then, which is Ursula K. Le Guin's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. version. But I started looking for all these kind of writers on writing, which were much harder to find back then because you had to sort of troll through the the bookstores and maybe they would have it and maybe they wouldn't have it. And, you know, I was kind of, it was, it was, 
I mean, the internet has been so wonderful in terms of connecting people to writing resources, things like this that right, right. doing right now. Right. Um, I wish that there had been something like this. I would have listened to it over and over and over again, but right. there wasn't, at least not that I had access to. Right, right. It, I, I totally agree. It's interesting how the amnesia of what Amazon has done is so powerful. Yeah. You know, how, how much information is so quickly available. Yeah. Not just in book form, but, you know, God forbid, in Kindle form, where yeah. in, you know, 20 seconds, you can have basically any information in the palm of your hand is just kind of mind blowing. Yeah. So as, as you worked into this, you know, writing your first novel and, and getting to writing Song of Achilles, was there novels before that or was there works before that that you had attempted that didn't pan out the way that you wanted? Absolutely. So for my senior, my school had a senior project and I was, my project was writing. And so I, I tried to write a couple of short stories, which I, I did and they were fine, but they were, I felt like they were sort of, they, they didn't really go anywhere. And then when I was in college, I had this idea to write a story about this weird Latin teacher. And I, I mean, I wrote it. It was a novel. I finished the novel. I forced my roommates to read it constantly, to read edits of it. And I feel guilty about it now. I don't even actually know if I still have it. It's on some computer, possibly in my mother's basement, that I don't think I can ever retrieve it. And I think that's probably for the best. I mean, at the time, I was really committed to it, but it was really not... I think it was essential for my eventual growth as a writer because it was forcing me to grapple with what is the plot? Who yeah. are my characters? How is this all going to work? And, and really make me work through all that. The end result was not great, but I think that the process was what was really important. And it sort of revealed a couple important things about my process to me. One is that I must work out while I am as part of my writing day. That's like- do you, do you mean like physically like exercise? Physically exercise. Oh, wow. Okay. So I would write, I would go for a run. I would have a ton of ideas. I would come home and I'd write them all down. Oh, wow. And I still do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I can't really run anymore because I ended up stress fracturing my leg. But I do go do some kind of workout walking and that that is really, really key. Wow. That's, inc that, you know, that, that, that's incredible. I, I think there is something, and this came up in a, in a separate episode about meditative mm -hmm. physical activities, yes. like kind of like the driving activities where you, yes. at a certain point, you're just not consciously aware of what you're doing and your mm -hmm. subconscious is almost being exercised. I, yes. I, I don't know if that makes sense. So for Song of Achilles, wh when did you start to think I have the skills and I have the idea. I have, I have the raw materials to put together something, a book that I want to bring into the world. What, what was the process like to, to write that book? So it actually happened fairly suddenly because, so I had been, I was a classicist and I was in grad, I was going into grad school for classics, but on the side I had been writing and I was actually at a university that's kind of well known for its writing department. But I, w I was a Brown, which has produced writers like uh, Jeffrey Eugenides right. and Rick Moody and Mike Wallitzer. A lot of people have come out of Brown, but I was terrified to take a writing course at Brown. So I didn't. I only took classes courses. I think I, at some point I thought about, I, I may have dipped my toe in and, and I, I think I applied for one intro class and I applied with a piece of this was my graduate year. I applied with a piece of Song of Achilles and it was one of the scenes that had something fantastical in it. And I think it just like that was not going to be a good fit for what was, I, I think they were sort of like, this is fantasy. 
we're, this is not a fantasy class. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> my I, physical I, reaction was like one of like <laughs> horror and shock. <laughs> you see my face is just like, you know, like you, you know, you get information in your brain and you're like, my brain can't make sense of what I just heard. <laughs> Because I love that book so deeply. I'm like, well, how could you ever say no to that? That was my mind. Anyways, okay. Sorry to, sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. Well, thank you. But it was, it was, for me, it just confirmed that I need to do this on my own, which is probably why Song of Achilles ended up taking me 10 years. But huh. the way it started was that I was sort of writing on the side and, and I was doing classics, but it really never occurred to me that I could put the two together. Even though I had been sort of telling stories on my own, I was teaching at that point, so I was telling versions of myth to my students. I, I was participating in that storytelling, but I didn't really feel like I had permission to do it hmm. until I directed this version of Troilus and Cressida, which is Shakespeare's version of the Iliad. And so all these characters are in there. He deals with, you know, Achilles and Ajax and Helen and Cassandra. And it was so exciting to get to be part, even though I was doing Shakespeare's version of the Iliad, I was still getting to shape the way Achilles delivered his lines or, you know, how Odysseus wore his costume and all that kind of stuff that when it was finished, it was like I had this revelation. I had been expecting to write about Achilles and Patroclus for my master's thesis. I, I was really frustrated that I felt like their relationship had been erased and closeted in modern scholarship. And so I was going to write my master's thesis on interpretations of Achilles and Patroclus as lovers through the centuries. Take that. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then as soon as that play was finished, I was like, I, I don't want to stop telling the story. And actually, I think the point I want to make about Achilles and Patroclus, I can make in a novel. And I think I can make it better in a novel. And yeah. so with this sort of weird compulsion, I started writing from Patroclus's perspective. And that was really the beginning. But I didn't tell anyone I was doing it because it felt like, you know, I, it felt like this very secretive, sort of frightening thing that I was doing, this very transgressive thing that I was doing. In what way that that like you shouldn't as a classicist you shouldn't be dabbing your toe in in fiction? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. It felt it felt it felt like I mean nowadays I think we have reclaimed fan fiction, but mm. it felt like people were going to say you're writing fan fiction and that's a bad thing. As opposed to now, I think I I I think I was being really silly because of course the the tradition of retelling these stories over the centuries is as old as Homer. You know, Homer himself, I don't even think he really was a person. He's, it's just sort of an accumulation of oral tradition. So these stories were already being shaped and told and retold. There's no final version of them. They're, right. you know. So I was actually doing something incredibly traditional, but it felt like I, I just kept saying, well, who am I to, to get to to say this, but I felt so passionately about this story. I, I didn't see it in the world and I really wanted to see it in the world. And so that's what, that's what let me push through my feeling that I was doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. And do you remember as, as you, you know, were seeing your creation come alive, you know, through a different medium, not through, not through a novel. Do you remember the feelings that you, that you experienced like seeing that? Was it, was it joy, excitement, what was it that like really made you say, I want to keep going with this? It was this, it was this passionate engagement with the story. And, and yes, I mean, there was a lot of joy. It was really exciting to get to tell the story the way I felt like I really wanted to see it, you know, to, to put, 
the love story between Achilles and Patroclus at the center of the epic story to honor Patroclus, who is a much nicer person than most of the people <laughs> in, in, right. in ancient myth. And there are hints of that even in Homer. I, I didn't just create that. That was something I was drawing on, on sources. And to sort of take this character who had been sidelined and forcibly closeted and bring them kind of bring them out. So there was a, a huge degree of satisfaction and joy in that. There was a lot of frustration with my own failure to get it right. I felt that I really owed it to to these characters to get it right. And I was okay. so frustrated that I I couldn't. But so but I just kept coming back and I kept saying, well, I'm just gonna keep banging my head against this wall and keep working on the scene. And I I feel like I a lot of my learning, we had talked a little bit about sort of learning how to deal with plot and character happened during the course of the various drafts of that. Because the first draft for Song of Achilles had basically zero dialogue in it because I was terrified of writing dialogue. I was really, really freaked out. And so I just didn't write any dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) And it was not a good version of the story. And what changed again was theater, which is that I became a theater director. And so I was constantly working with dialogue. And somehow that allowed me to realize that actually I can write dialogue. And the final version has tons of dialogue in it. And I, I, now I love writing dialogue. I can't stop writing dialogue. So it's, but that was something that was definitely a skill that I had to learn how to do. Yeah. I, I have so like, I have like 15 directions I want to go with what you just <laughs> said. It's like hard to pick one. You said, you said Song of Achilles took you 10 years to write? Yes. Yes. What, what were those 10 years? Like if you had to break those up into blocks, what were those blocks? Sure. So there were, there were kind of two years of me just, noodling around and like not even knowing where to start and not even knowing what kind of voice to give Patroclus. So trying out a lot of different voices and then kind of around year three, my directing partner, I showed it to him and he was a, he's a classicist. He's a born storyteller. He was incredibly supportive and he was like, you have to keep writing, you have to keep writing. And, and having just one reader, one person that I could trust with it, who I, whose artistic vision I trusted and I knew I did because we had directed together was really, really helpful. So that kind of shot me into the next phase, just knowing that I had a reader who could, who could read it because before that I wasn't giving it to anybody. And then kind of around year five, I actually had a finished version of it. And I got an agent even, and we started to move towards the submission process. And I just realized that it wasn't right. And that was really, that was maybe the hardest moment on the whole thing is to look at it and realize like, this is not what I want it to be. And I didn't know how, but I didn't know how to fix it. What, What made you say that? It just was flat it was so now I can sort of explain what it was at the time it was just this feeling of like no this is this is wrong but looking back on it it was partially there was not uh, Patroclus's voice was all wrong so I had spent all this time trying to get his voice right but I had still gotten it wrong because I had given him this epic voice as opposed to the voice that he needed to have was a lyric voice Hmm. it was a voice that was more inspired, it was not inspired by Virgil and Homer, but inspired by Catullus and Sappho, the great sort of love poets of the ancient world. And so epic diction and and lyric diction in the ancient world are are very, very, very different things. Lyric diction is, it's much shorter, it's much more poetic, it's much more connected to love and daily life and friendship. And so I wanted all of that to be, to be infused in his voice. 
instead of this, this epic thing, it was sort of me trying to figure out what am I actually doing? What I'm actually doing is telling an epic story from a lyric perspective. Yeah. Where did you, when you, when you sensed that something was off, where did you feel that? Was that like a head thing? Was that a heart thing? It was like a pit of my stomach. Pit of despair. Stomach. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been there personally. I totally understand that feeling of being like, I can't quite put my finger on what is wrong with the narrative. Yeah. It's never, for me, it's never a small detail. It's always something yeah. like a character or a voice yeah. is, in, is, is off. It's, it's wrong and it's more what I think it should sound like as opposed to what the character wants to sound like. I, again, I'm pretty woo-woo on like, I think characters speak to me, not the other way around, you know? So, yeah. um, <laughs> so to me, it's always like a character saying like, actually, I don't sound that way. Yeah. Or I, or I have a different motivation. Yeah. So then how did you get... It was interesting because you said there, were, there was a the diction, the way that the character was speaking was off, but then you found that it was actually a different type of style that you want, that, that the character wanted to speak as. How did you get from, how did you get that answer? Was it reading? Like what, like what was the jump? How did that happen? I think so at the time. So what I did was that I was so depressed about this that I thought I, I need help and I need to go to a writing course. So I decided to go to the New York State Summer Writers Institute, which is was kind of a two-week program, but I didn't sign up for fiction because I couldn't bear the thought of submitting any of it. So I signed up for a non-fiction course, a personal essay. And so I think I learned two things from that. One is that working on something else when you're stuck can be really great. And working on some personal essays was really helpful and sort of just allowed me to like feel good about something that was shorter and a little bit easier to manage and, and didn't feel like I was dragging this huge albatross behind me. But the other thing is that being around other writers and hearing from professional writers who would come in and talk about craft was so helpful to me. And it was really inspiring. And I, I wasn't aware of anything consciously happening. But one day as I was walking home from the cafeteria, the first line of Song of Achilles, as it stands now, popped into my head. I mean, it really felt almost kind of, you know, like that's that's what the muses feel like. When all of a sudden it's like my father was a king and the son of kings came right through, came right through wow. my head. Wow. And so I ran home wow. and I typed up the first chapter of Song of Achilles pretty much as it stands. I mean, I edited a little bit, but basically, and so I had the voice and then it was like, I was afraid to like close the computer. I felt like it was, I was Pandora shutting the box on hope. Like, don't look in there for another, just, just leave it. And so I left, I left that kind of sit and simmer and then I found another wonderful reader who actually I ended up marrying. So now he's my husband. But <laughs> very, very, very wonderful reader. <laughs> very, very wonderful reader. And we, he was, he's also a writer. And we were talking about writing. And I said, you know, I have this novel that I've been working on. And I have a one chapter. I feel okay about the first chapter. And he was like, well, read it to me. And I read it to him. And he said to me, listen, you must finish this. Just finish, just finish it. That's what you need to do. And so I thought, okay, well... Now I have, again, like the importance of a good reader just kind of juicing you at the right moment cannot be overstated. So I started, I started in on it again and I started taking a look at it and I basically ended up tricking myself into finishing it because what I said is, okay, the first chapter, I like where that is. So, but now I have to change the second chapter because it doesn't fit with the first chapter. So I'm just going to change the second chapter and then everything will be fine. 
And then I changed, rewrote the second chapter and then I came to the third chapter. And I was like, well, now this third chapter doesn't really work. So I'm going to rewrite that. And I ended up rewriting the whole piece <laughs> that way, but without telling myself, you're going to have to write all 350 pages. <laughs> like, I, I think my I brain just it. couldn't have handled that. I, I love it. So I, th- this is actually a tactic I, I think is super successful <laughs> in life in general. <laughs> it's a wonderful parenting tactic. <laughs> <laughs> It's very hard. You know, I think as a writer, when especially when you're facing down a rewrite, like you're talking yeah. about, where it's like, oh, no, I just did this book and I have to redo the whole thing. Yes. Like you said, to take the entire thing and say, here goes the hundreds and hundreds of pages of rewriting and hundreds of hours and yeah. heartache. And I'm already connected because I think it should be done, whatever. It, it's almost an, a motivation killer. Like it almost will yeah. break you if you take that yeah. whole thing in. And I find this an exercise. So like if I don't want to exercise or if I don't want to do something, I'll say, I'm not going to exercise today because yeah. I exercise after I write in the morning. I'll go on a run through the park in Brooklyn. So I'll say, I'm not going to exercise today, but what I am going to do is I'm just going to put my running clothes on. Yeah. I'm just going to wear my running clothes to the, to the, to the office. And <laughs> I'm going to write and I'm just going to come right home. No, I'm not going <laughs> to. And then as I'm writing, I'll be like, you know what? I'm not going to really run, but maybe I'll just kind of walk a little bit. You know, I'm just going to walk. I'm just going to warm up, nothing big. And so then I'll start to walk. And then, and then by that point you're off and it's like, I can do this. And so I love those mental tricks that help you chunk down work so that you're not looking at the entirety of being like, I have to go on a long run and I don't want to, it's cold. Or I have to rewrite an entire book and being like, okay, here's something that's actually digestible and usable. Yes. That I can do today. And like, I can execute (laughs) against it. And it's an easy checkbox. Not a big deal. (laughs) Exactly. So, so now that, you know, Song of Achilles is done, Circe is done, do you have a writing process that now as, as you sit that you adhere to? Are you still exercising? It sounds like you are. What else goes into an average day for you? Um, I'm still, I, I definitely still exercise every day that I'm writing. I try and write sort of for, for chunks at a time. Sort of my, my ideal is I write in the morning and then I go work out and then I come and do a little bit more writing and then I take a break until midnight when everyone is asleep and then I do some of my, some of my best work time is, is at night when sort of the house is dark. And, and I, how much is each block? Like, like in the morning, what's that? How long is that first block? So hopefully three hours, kind of like okay. nine to 12 ish, but I, I will take breaks sometimes for research. I'll stop and I'll, and I'll do a little research if I need to, or maybe I'll just pick up a book I want to read. I often start each day with a little bit of poetry. I really like the potency of poetry and I like how I feel that poetry carries the same oomph that, you know, a novel does, but it does it much more compactly. And so I feel like that helps me remember that I want every word to be load bearing. And so that is kind of an important, so if I feel like I'm getting too, I don't know, weak in my writing, sometimes I'll read, I'll read poetry or I'll read a writer that I feel like has really potent language. And just to kind of remind myself, that's what I want to be aiming for. But I'm, I'm being a little sort of loose about it. Cause right now I'm in one of these times where I feel like I'm sort of I'm dancing with an idea and I'm writing a little bit and I'm doing a lot of reading and 
and I'm doing a lot of researching, a lot of thinking about it, but I'm not actually doing the like three hours every day, sit down. And I'm sort of, it's, it's kind of a germinating period. And so I used to feel that germinating periods were periods where I was avoiding my writing, but I have come to understand that they are really important to my, mm. my process. And it was actually Ann Patchett who helped me with this because she said she had something like, sometimes I'm living and sometimes I'm writing and they're both valuable. And I feel like that this is this time period where I'm sort of still, I'm stepping into the new project. I'm thinking about it. I'm getting it. I'm kind of slowly letting it fill up my mind, but I'm not pressing myself to be an expert on it because I don't feel like I am an expert on it yet. Yeah. Do you have a belief about where stories come from, like where those ideas originate from? For me, I mean, it definitely feels like these are stories that I am really passionate about, but I don't understand the passion for a long time. I have to keep kind of diving deeper and deeper into it. Like, what is the piece of this story that is really interesting to me and what's the through line? And, you know, I'm aware of this kind of overwhelming, like seismic, you know, I don't know what kind of ball of energy but I, it's all just one giant mass that is not articulated or understood. And so I feel like I have to kind of go in and figure out, well, what's at the core of this? Yeah. Do you, do you tend to, when you're, when you're getting a story idea together, do you tend to look to have a structure for the story or do you start, like you said, you have one line and then you write it and then you do a chapter and then the next chapter or do you think like, here's like a under, here's like a massive structure, or like not even massive structure in general that I want the book to roughly follow? Some of both. I think with Song of Achilles and Circe, there was a rough structure in place a little bit just because of the nature of the mythology. I mean, much more so for Song of Achilles and Circe. With Circe, there are kind of four major Circe myths that were kind of like portals that I was going through. But everything in between I made up. So I did have those as touchstones. The story I'm working on right now is actually inspired by The Tempest. So that's my that's my Shakespeare theater side. And I'm interested in what happens after The Tempest, which means that there are absolutely no sources whatsoever. It's totally my imagination. And so it's fun to kind of take that on. But it's also a challenge because I haven't really done it before that same way where I have a there's a really strong backstory in place. But now I'm extrapolating out into mm. what happens based on that backstory. So, but I like that. I mean, one of the things that I have noticed is that each project that I take on is harder than the previous project. And by, I, by design, or is that just it? Just the way it works out for you? I think that's just the way it works out for me. I think yeah. I think that that I'm I seek out challenges, and I that's kind of part of my makeup and so or maybe I think well now I can do that so now I want to you know I mean which is not to say that Song of Achilles was an easy novel to write it definitely was not as we've discussed but Circe had a much much larger cast of characters Mm -hmm. that I was juggling and happened over a much longer time span and had to happen sort of there was a lot of action that happened on an like a lot of the plot was Circe's internal development which, you know, I wanted to make sure, which could be tricky when your character's trapped on an island, you know, for millennia. <laughs> um, and so it was just, there were, there were some real craft challenges to it. And I feel like, again, with this book, there's going to be, now there's certain yeah. new craft challenges. And I, I wanted to ask that about Cersei, because when I, I read the book twice, which I don't 
I never ever read books twice, but I read it once, just kind of inhaled it because I was like, well, <laughs> I'm going to read this whole thing. I mean, I'm a huge history, Roman history, not so much like Greek mythology, but a lot of the Roman you know, <clears throat> myths were straight stolen from the Greeks. You know? so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of parallels there. So when I found it, I, you know, I, I just was like, okay, this is a book for me. So I read the whole thing. And you know, as I was thinking about chatting with you today, and even while I was reading it, one of the things that was very apparent was how much is happening with how many characters across, you know, very, very distinct locations, you know, so like, you're in the hall of the gods, and then you're on an island, and then you're on ships, and you're just then you're on a different island, and there's different people, and they all are cohabitating what feels like a very organic, natural space. And as I was preparing for this, I, I thought there had to be an incredible level of organization to pull that off, like from a craft perspective. Yeah. Compound in the fact that each one of the characters like the gods all are, they, they are all different. Like they, they're not carbon copies of each other and the characters all feel different from each other. You, you, you get a sense of their individuality. And this is a broad question because there's no good way to chunk this down. But like, how in the world did you pull that off? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, this is a very kind question. I, I think that that, so Cersei took me seven years and I think a lot of that time was me really digging into those characters and wanting all the characters to, to really feel like full people. And, you know, theater to the rescue, again, I have to say, everything I know about writing, maybe not everything, but 90% of what I know about writing, I learned from theater. Because theater is also storytelling. But the thing about theater is that when a scene is not working on the stage, like, you really can't fudge it. Like, it's very clear that that scene is not working. And so, you know, I think it it forced me, or if there's a character who's just standing there and not doing anything, it's like, wow, that person is sticking out like a sore thumb. And I, I feel like it made me more aware of it in my writing to really want to make sure that all my secondary characters have full personalities, real motivations. You know, even if we just see a glimpse of them, they should, they should be fully inhabited. So can I, can I interrupt you? How did you yeah. do that? Like, like what, what was the exact method you used to, develop the personality of a secondary character and then be able to call upon it. Cause there's times when you meet a secondary character in your book and then you don't meet him again for many pages later. <laughs> so it's, you've probably forgotten by the time you get back to them and you're writing it, you're probably like, what was this person like again? And I, I would love <laughs> to know, like, how did you keep them all straight? I, or did you just do it in your brain? Are you just, are you I, just, I just did it in my brain. Oh my That's God. Not- <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know, I'm very character oriented and I'm very people oriented. And so my husband has this unbelievable ability with sort of geography and like physical mapping stuff. And, but for me, I'm always focused on characters. And so I think that that is, that's a strength of mine, I guess, or it's something that I've worked on a lot because I've worked with so many characters in in theater that it's, they're just, they're, they're living out their lives in my brain you know, on separate traps, tracks. So just cause I have to repeat it. I heard very clearly, but like, I have to say it to make sure it like, <laughs> so when you, when you wrote Cersei with those zillions of characters across a zillion different locations and they're all doing different things at different times in their lives, as you're writing it, you could just call upon them. You had them so well defined in your brain and you knew them so well, you could just call upon them in your brain to be like, how would, this person speak in this scene. Yes. That is incredible. <laughs> but you I know, mean, I it's I a do. testament to your 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 <laughs> development of the characters, your embodiment of them. It it really is because I think, you know, a lot of times when when a piece falls flat, when a piece doesn't work, 
99% of the time, it's because people will say, well, the character wasn't developed, the character wasn't developed, the character wasn't developed. And so that level of character development in quantity, but also depth is, I think, a testament to why a book like Cersei works so well. I mean, I would have never guessed that, but now that you say it, I'm like, you know what? It makes sense because it was so organic. Like it just, it flowed so well. There wasn't any pieces where it's like, I don't think that character would say that because they just read in your brain the whole time. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I really, I, I really truly have to give the credit to, to, to practicing it over and over and over again with, with characters on, on the stage. That's and incredible. I feel like working with actors that, that that was sort of my version of, of an MFA. I don't have an MFA, but directing, you know, three plays a year for seven years was my, that was in some ways my, my MFA. Yeah. You seem like somebody, as we're talking, the thing that's been impressed to me is you, you seem like you've synthesized disparate lessons from other fields into writing a novel, right? So from theater, you took character development. And from the classics, you took this like deep resonant sense of timeless stories. Mm. And then from just writing in general, and, and it, it's a, it's a really, it's a cool combo to see the synthesis of like different fields of life being pulled off in incredibly unique storytelling thus far in two books. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's, it's kind of amazing because it, it all felt very cobbled together at the time. It felt like I don't have any formal education in this. I mean, other than reading, being very deliberate about reading mm-hmm. writers talking about writing, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think it, I think there is a lot, I think because storytelling, as we started talking about, is such a a primal human feeling and a primal human impulse that there's storytelling in so many fields of human of human life that you can sort of pull it, you know, into writing from other places. Yeah, and and it's it's also as I you know as I think about this more as we're talking, it's also playing the cards you're dealt. So like like using the material of your life and the experiences of your life to add to your storytelling arsenal because hmm. I think it'd be easy to be like, well, I was in theater or I was directing plays. So I really don't have any business writing. Whereas you said, actually I'm learning how to do dialogue and I'm learning the value of character. Yeah. And so parlaying that into where, whatever the, the work is, it, it lends its own uniqueness, but also its own strength and its own energy, which, you know, you've clearly pulled off. Okay. So I want, I want to ask you, as you look back now and you look back at, you know, a seven-year project, a 10-year project, you're cooking another project in your brain. Are there, if you think about like the the handful of things that you seem or, or you believe are absolutely key and absolutely important to writing for you, it can be skills or perspectives or beliefs or process. What, what are those big buckets that you're like, this is the thing I'm carrying forward to continue creating and continue, you know, making me, you know, produce these works? From a from a craft perspective, or from or anything, yeah, craft anything. or life, or just just in general, I'm I'm I'm, inter- I'm interested in how the lessons of the past, let's call it twenty years or whatever, have distilled themselves down to a couple of like core tenets that you use to create in your life mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. I think I have really given myself permission to follow my passionate impulses. You know, I used to question myself a lot over why am I into this weird detail. For example, in Circe, there so there is a myth, very short mythological reference to Circe arming her son with a stingray tail spear, 
And in the myth, it's just a regular old stingray tail. But I was obsessed with that detail. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was really cool as a like a witch's weapon. It's like a stingray tail spear. And that scene, I was like, yeah, she has to get the stingray tail spear and make it for her son. But it's not a regular stingray. It's like a giant stingray at the bottom of the ocean. And she has to go it. down. And that whole thing, like, just like, came to me and I was like that's a really weird idea and I was like well I don't know I can't get rid of that idea so I'm just it has and that idea ended up becoming one of the most kind of significant portals that Cersei has to pass through it's this really significant moment on her journey and it came from this impulse that I didn't understand and that I sort of rejected as weird when I first started thinking about it and so to just not edit myself that way that there was some part of me that that felt this connection to that and felt like there was something there that belonged in Cersei's story and to kind of trust that artistic vision. So I think, you know, you can always throw it out. Sometimes ideas don't work and that's fine too. But to, to let myself, to not self-edit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think that's one of the really important things. Good research, always so helpful that whenever I get stuck, going back to the sources, reading scholars, talking about the sources is really helpful. Just reading around it as much as possible. I love, I, I, I always find inspiration there. And finally, to just give myself the time to let things develop, to not panic if, you know, I'm two years in and it's not working. Mm. Fine. Keep going. Keep going. Just keep going deeper. And I think that permission has been really helpful. Love it. So before we get into our final questions, I, I, we're headed in. We're headed into the holiday season. <laughs> and for me, at least, holiday season equals reading. Lots mm-hmm. and lots of reading. Do you have anything on your holiday reading list right now? Well, I have a book I just finished that I am so in love with. That I am Oh, what is it? Everyone's going to want to know. Yes, everyone must read Cantoris by Carolina de Robertis. Um, It's so, so good. It's about five queer women living in South America under a dictator and sort of finding finding their way it's this incredibly powerful story it has she has lush and beautiful writing it's just and the characters are so strongly defined I just it's so I always love reading a book where I'm like wow what a great book all the way through and you know so I'm I always become really passionate about that so everyone should go read Cantor Okay. Um, <laughs> but what am I reading? Let's see. I have a bunch of, of nonfiction books that I'm, I'm starting. I'm really, for my next novel, I'm really interested in sort of what happens to children who have experienced trauma when they grow up. And so I would not call it light holiday reading, but yeah. it is really important reading. And so yeah. I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. And that's kind of part of, of building, building my story. Let's see. What am I reading for for fun? I just got. I I have. I, as soon as anyone asks me that question, my mind goes blank because I Always. have a huge stack of like books that I'm about to start reading that I haven't started reading yet. I actually do a lot of rereading sometimes around the holidays when things get hectic because I really like that. So I was thinking about rereading *The Mirror Wife*, which is a book I really enjoyed. That's a retelling of *Beowulf*, but from the perspective of Grendel's mother, set in modern times. So very very interesting, right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. Are you reading anything good? Because I always take recommendations. (laughs) So so I just finished a bunch of a bunch of books. I just finished Overstory. Oh my gosh, I loved the Overstory. I I don't even know if I could use words to describe it. I I agree. I couldn't couldn't 
I feel like I need to read it again. Like, yeah. I don't think I was smart enough on the first read through to get <laughs> all of the implications and everything he was saying. I, I'm like you though. I read a lot of nonfiction, a ton of nonfiction. I read as much nonfiction as I read fiction. So I just started for the 500th time, the rise and fall of the Roman empire. Oh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. what I'm into. Uh, and, then I, <laughs> and then I'm also starting the other Americans. Oh my Ryan. gosh. I love the Moore's account. So I'm really excited okay. about that. Yeah, that, that was her earlier book. Yeah, it's the first book. Yeah, yeah. or I, I don't know if it's first. Earlier book is, is yeah. probably more true. So yeah, that's gonna probably be a majority. And I'm gonna try and not read news. That's I, that's it's more of what I don't want to read over holiday yeah. break than what I want to read. Um, yeah, not that it's you know we should obviously be keeping up with the news, but it's okay to take a break. Yes, <laughs> right. Yes. Okay, so every guest, I ask, I ask every guest the exact same three questions, and it's a wonderful baseline, and I get so many wonderful answers. It's becoming a part of the, the show that I, I love the most. <laughs> so to round out the show, finish this off, I'm going to ask you three questions. Let's start. Okay, question number one is, is there a specific tool, can be anything at all, and I have down here a pencil, software, or chair, anything, that you absolutely must have to write? Okay, so I have two answers to this. One is silence. I cannot write with any kind of noise or music or disruption or people talking. I must write in a completely silent space. Pure Um, silence, not not even like background music? No, not at all. That's like total killer for me. Total silence. And second of all, when my old lap, I need, I need laptop. I need a laptop that has keys that have a certain amount of travel. And I learned this when my old laptop right after Cersei died and I was going to get the newest version and they had taken out the travel on the keys. I didn't even know there was a word for that. Like, so I had to learn the word travel. So I was like, but the keys, what's wrong with the keys? They're not working. So and so I, I kept testing. I was like, I don't know. I guess I have to get this laptop, but I don't think I can write on this laptop because the keys are really weird. And so then I found a refurbished version of my old laptop so I can cling to my, I don't know what's yeah. going to happen when this version goes. And but I'm going to go ahead and guess that the new laptop was the new MacBook. It was. Yeah. It was. It was yeah. awful. When are, are they going to listen to the people who say that we can't I don't know. write on them? It, it feels like you're writing on like a glass plate. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm horrible. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, and I'm curious, I, I don't want to distract us too much, but how did you deal with needing absolute silence with kind of the introduction of children into your life? It's been challenging, but... Yeah. Um, you work at home or do you have a separate office space? I do work at home. So white white noise machines are very helpful. And we have, and we don't live in the city. We live a little bit out. So we have a little bit more, more space. So I have sort of a place where I can go where if I shut the door. And my husband is also amazing about you know, getting the kids out of the house and, and sort of during particular blocks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's kids are kids, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but honestly, the kid noise doesn't bother me so much. And sometimes it's kind of nice when they run in and they're like, hello. Yeah. And then you have a, you know, nice moment. It's like sobering, <laughs> like puts things in perspective. Like, okay, yes. this sentence is going to be okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be all right. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. And we, we touched on this a little bit, but, you know, just to kind of round this out. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? Mm. I think it has, it, it is really helpful to have gone through them before. But I think the first time with Song of Achilles, it sort of felt like every bad phase was permanently a bad phase. Whereas now that I'm starting my third book, I can sort of say, you know what? Bad phases are part of the process. So you're just going through this, just like you go through the good phases and you know you just have to keep going. And so having that perspective that it's something 
you know, bad moments are, are part of the process has really helped. So just keeping that in perspective. Last question is, if you could give one piece of advice to new writers out there listening to the podcast, what would that be? I think just keep going and don't let too many voices in, in the beginning that sometimes I think when you write something good, you or something you're excited about, you want to show it to 10 different people. And I think that that can get confusing and it can kind of muddy your vision. So hold it, hold it close and, you know, maybe let one, one reader in, but, but get your feet firmly planted before even you let them in. Yeah. I love it. Madeline, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time in this interview. I, I feel like my mind is blown by the fact you have so many characters in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that like to my, my grave with me. Like, I one time met an author. Well, thank you. You're so kind. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. It's really a treat to talk with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you again to Madeline for her time. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. Also, connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, mainly Instagram. More information can also be found at www.howwriterswrite.com. Thank you again, listeners. I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.